Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Dr. Peter Hotez is the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. He's the co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital for Vaccine Development, testified before U.S. Congress last week, and he joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Hotez, thank you so much for the time. Has anything substantively changed about the COVID-19 pandemic since you and I spoke last weekend? Uh, there, you know, first of all, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think a few things have happened. Uh, we, you know, last week, if you remember, I predicted it was going to be a tough week for America because we were getting more testing in place, not as much as we'd like, but still more, and through some commercial labs that have agreed to take on some of this testing, and therefore the numbers would go up, and sure enough, they have. We're, uh, you know, it's even hard to keep up with the number. We're looking around 1,600 when I last looked, and we may even be 10 times more that by the following next week. So the numbers are starting to climb, and with it, we'll start to identify uh, new areas of transmission. And, and the point is, it's not that they're really new, it's just that they were they're around for a while we're just not picking it up so uh, over the next couple of weeks we'll get a much better idea of the full extent of this epidemic in the united states is the covid19 virus ultimately going to overpower even the american healthcare system well that's the big question isn't it uh that's what everyone's uh, worried about you know there there are lots of projected estimates that are being conducted by modelers who people who are trained in epidemiology and math and like to predict the size and scope of epidemics and some of the numbers that are out there are pretty frightening 70 million americans will be infected over the next few weeks or maybe even double that half the population of the united states the only thing I could say that might be comforting is sometimes the modelers don't get it right uh, because it turns out I've worked. I'm not a modeler myself, but I've collaborated with model modelers around our vaccines that we develop to get estimates of how much vaccine coverage we need, how effective the vaccine has to be. And one of the observations I've always made is just a few tweaks to the model and you can get vastly different outputs and results and so, and so sometimes the modest tweaks and the assumptions can give you a very different number. So I, so I, you know, the, we, the numbers really could be all over the map at this point. Uh, but it's clear that if we do nothing, the consequences could be dire. So it's all the more important now that we implement social distancing and all the other measures that you're hearing about on the news. Uh, when you and I spoke last weekend, you mentioned that in 2016 you had been involved in the... Um, in work on a vaccine, which would have, had it been, had the funding been there for you to complete the project, would have been a vaccine that would have been helpful in dealing with COVID-19. Now, when you and I spoke earlier off the air this morning, you mentioned to me, if I hope I got this correctly, that there exists something now which we could be making use of in the battle against COVID-19, but we're not? Yeah, so when, when we spoke last week, I told you about our vaccine development program. Uh, we've had a coronavirus vaccine program for the last decade, among our other vaccines. And we have a vaccine that's been manufactured, and now we wanted to get, in, get it into clinical testing, along with uh, others that are uh, out there from some of the biotechs, and, and get them 
uh, through clinical trials, which will take, you know, at least a year, maybe two years. So that, that means it probably won't be ready in time for this epidemic. But if the virus comes back, then we'll have it. But in the meantime, I do think there is something uh, that we could do now for patients that are starting to come into hospitals in the United States. And, and uh, it's, being, uh, it's, it's actually an old therapy that's been around for 100 years uh, was, or more. It was used in the 1918 flu pandemic with some, exce- some success. And uh, my, some of my colleagues, including Arturo Acosta-Deval at Johns Hopkins, has now written an article about this that just got posted in the Journal of Clinical Investigation uh, to say that, you know, he thinks that this could be very useful, and I agree with him, for, for COVID-19. And we had actually talked about it before we wrote the paper, but it was it was a few weeks back, and I said, Arturo, you know, I'm not convinced things will get that dire, so we're going to have so many patients coming into the hospital who would need this therapy. But now I'm not so sure. So now I'm really trying to raise awareness. So I was on this week, I was on CNN and Fox News and MSNBC, you know, and used that opportunity to get to reach so many people to, to talk this up a bit and see if it catches fire and people get interested. Now, what is the substance again? So what you do is uh, if you have individuals, if it was shown during the 1918 flu pandemic, that if somebody had gotten that flu virus, the Spanish flu, as they called it back then, and then you recovered, if you would take some of the blood out of those individuals and and isolate the antibody to the virus from what's called convalescent serum, meaning those convalescent convalescent patients, by the fact that they were convalescing means they had antibody to the virus and had survived, you could then harvest some of that antibody uh, in, in a sterile way and then actually give it to sick patients to help them recover faster and reduce the likelihood that they'll become severely ill or even die. And, and now with, we have better methods of measuring antibody, we have better, uh, we have better initiatives to ensure sterility and quality control so we can do it. It's still an old-fashioned technology, but we could probably do it better and safer than we did 100 years ago, and it could have a big impact on uh, reducing the number of people who die if we start seeing hundreds or thousands of sick patients enter into the hospital or intensive care units. So, so I, it's relatively low cost. It requires uh, a hospital to have a good blood bank, and almost every hospital in the country has a good blood bank. It may be a level of sophistication such that it has to be a university or academic health center that does it, that that remains to be seen. But, you know, let's do it. It's low cost. It's uh, relatively not, it's not complicated. Mm -hmm. Blood banks have the capacity for doing it. There's really no reason not to. It also has the potential added benefit that if you give that antibody in smaller doses, not the full dose you would need to treat a patient, in a smaller dose you could use it for prophylaxis for health care workers so they don't get sick or uh, and it'll last a few weeks or among first rep- first responders so they don't have to live in fear about uh, you know, being uh, contracting the virus from, from people that they're trying to help or forcing them to get out of the workforce and staying in quarantine. So it has a lot of societal patient benefits and societal benefits 
now a matter of uh, no. uh, raising awareness. It Make, makes absolute sense to uh, to do that. If, if there was some success 100 years ago when they couldn't even identify what a virus was, and that particular procedure had some success, that makes absolute sense to put it into some practice now. Let me ask you one more question, Dr. Hotez. What are the chances if this virus becomes, let's say, the doomsday scenario that I've heard over and over as well, we all have, if it becomes a, close to that, uh, is there a chance that some of the steps in the actual creation of and testing of uh, of, a, of a vaccine may be reduced, eliminated in order to get a vaccine that shows uh, promise, significant promise, out to the general public? I'm not sure your question. You mean, you know, is well, would it, would it, would, things are looking really dire? Would, would some of the steps perhaps be removed in approving a, vi- yeah, a vaccine? Yeah, and, we, and we've had a lot of discussions about that. Could we streamline some of the steps? Right. Uh, in vaccine development, so we have a vaccine quicker, and and the answer is maybe, and and I think there's a lot of effort to look at that. You also have to be careful too, because th- with with coronavirus vaccines, they're they're kind of quirky uh, in laboratory animals, as are other respiratory virus vaccines. All right. And there's this phenomenon known as immune enhancement, where the vaccine can actually make things worse. So. Mm. I'm on the side that this is a vaccine that we should not really rush because if we make something that worsens the situation, it has a lot of ramifications given high pro- the okay. high profile of this disease that could really interfere with uh, uh, future vaccines. And we've seen that happen with in the Philippines last year with a vaccine for dengue fever that was given, and, and, and it's not even clear that there was really a problem with the vaccine, but enough people feel it was, it, that, and there was enough public information about it that people lost confidence, not only in the dengue vaccine, but the whole vaccine supply of the country, right. and people stopped vaccinating their kids against measles a, and other diseases, and, there, and, and that resulted in a lot of death. Yeah, there's so, a reason for so, the, have the process that we have. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.